Some books pose a particular challenge to the interviewer tasked with describing them, in that they stubbornly resist any succinct description. Cory Fardas' Social Mobility by Isabel Weiner is one such book. So, is it a mind-bending science fiction romp through uncountable dimensions? Is it an examination of how cultural artefacts shape us and are reshaped by us? Is it a cutting satire of the British class system? Is it one person's singular quest to come to terms with themselves? Is it a hilarious and painfully on-target parody of the literary world? Or is it even a love story? The answer to all these questions is both yes and not exactly. Unique in its inventiveness, unique in its prose style, unique in its point of view, and unique in its sense of humour, Cory Fardas' social mobility is a reading experience like no other, and I'm so happy to say that Isabel Weidner joins us to discuss it today. Isabel, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. I must say, my answer to all of your questions would be yes. It's okay. absolutely all of these things. <laughs> is, there anything the you would like to, is there anything you'd like to add to that list? Yeah, I couldn't if I tried. It was pretty much a perfect um, <laughs> summary, if you want to call it that, of the book. Oh, that's um, well, that's uh, that's good to know. Um, <laughs> I suppose where I'd like to start today is with the the world of the book, um, because one of the things that sort of was evoked for me uh, while reading um, Kurifa was, I suppose it was the the sort of world building that took place in. What for me is one of the kind of the golden age of sort of science fiction writing in the sort of the 60s and 70s, the kind of I think the kind of time when it felt at least that you know people didn't really care about science fiction. And as a result, the science fiction writers could really do what they wanted. Um, and there's still kind of both kind of a sort of an openness and a sort of an expansiveness to, to the world building. And I, and I recognized kind of echoes of that in, um, in Cory Farr. So I was wondering, would you be able to begin just by sort of talking a little bit about how how this world in which the the story takes place came into being for you. Um, thank you so much for that question. That's a really interesting connection you make to the uh, to sixties sci fi writing. Um, I should say to, to begin with, I would say that more immediately I come out more of literary tradition, like mm -hmm. sort of literary fiction traditions, modernist traditions, arguably. But precisely, my point or one a big part of my project is is to upset these sort of um, more, um, the kind of more straightforward traditions of the novel mm -hmm. by including some of the um, writing techniques and including world building techniques that we know from 60 science fiction. So um, I do bring in some of the ideas that people like Samuel Delaney, for example, mm -hmm. um, really um, developed from the 1960s onwards. Um, so yeah, this particular world in Corifada's social mobility, um, is the the book is set in a, a something called the international capital. So there's never a, I never give it a proper name. It's kind of London, but mm -hmm. with more with like sort of Eastern European influences, yes. with um, sort of non-European influences as well. Um, so it's a deliberately entirely misplaced or displaced. Um, notion of London mm -hmm. but I do picture all of the settings in actual London so the opening scene is set is, is one of the, set in one of the key locations of the no novel and I called it Koshma Circus but it's mm -hmm. actually based pretty much exactly on Arnold Circus in East London mm -hmm. that I know very well and may maybe some of your re uh, listeners will as well so it's a kind of defamiliarized um, mm -hmm. version of London called the international capital 
Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about that sort of defamiliarization. Like there's there's one moment um, when when Corey uh, writes or says, "My modus operandi was dissociation," um, and and immediately that line leapt out to me. It's sort of that feels very much like your modus operandi as well. Um, what I suppose what what is the um, what effect did do you feel it has as a writer to take London but just sort of fracture it a little bit? Yeah, it's um, that's interesting. Exactly. So Corey Father writer is always I mean, they're, they're always in the thick of the action, really, mm. there's a lot going on. And there's in a way a lot of plot, so to speak in the in the novel. But they're also always um, slightly outside of everything. Mm-hmm. So they're never fully um, connecting to whatever is going out around them. And I think this is sort of a, I'm doing, I I write this deliberately in that way because I I think it stages or performs some of um, the experience of being, um, say, a a marginalized writer Mm -hmm. in Britain or even like a person, uh, a person from a migrant background or a working class person or, or also people of color and queer and trans people, how we often feel in relation to um, mainstream culture, so to speak. Mm-hmm. There's always a slight, diff- um, a slight, a slightly, um, a slight dissociation there mm-hmm. already. So I'm using that. I'm sort of trying to stage with my writing that particular experience, which is obviously also as kind of like a psychological term, isn't it? You mm-hmm. dissociate from something if you, if you can't. Um, handle if you can't handle it or if you're overwhelmed by something yeah and that that feeling of dissociation i think is heightened by the fact that there are so many elements that are familiar as well so as you say like elements of of london that that um that readers may may recognize or there's um you know even, even just little things there's one moment where um they're listing uh the newspapers and you have like the Guardian, the New York Times, and the Al Jazeera print edition, and just you know these these sort of three familiar names, but one unfamiliar format has a really sort of profound kind of fracturing of a, effect on the um, on the reader's mind. I, I, could you talk a little bit about how how you come to these kind of images? Like, is it is it sort of done quite sort of instinctively, um, or is there something kind of an underlying kind of technical process at work to make sure you get the just the right level of uh, dissociation. I guess. That these days, it's pretty much instinctual. But um, this is a kind of a writing practice that I've been developing now for for twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, so this sort of the feeling of it coming naturally or coming automatically is has has been you know has been laboriously acquired Mm -hmm. so I think these days it's all pretty instinctual but yeah I did I did set out to achieve precisely that situate something in a recognizable reality Mm -hmm. whilst at the same time constantly edging it sideways a little bit Mm -hmm. so yeah precisely I'm I'm glad you're describing the effect of it And, and does that recognizable reality also include yourself as well and I ask it like I'm always reluctant to sort of bring in the let's say the personal life or personal circumstances of the writer into a novel and yet up front with Corifar I mean you've said Corifar the writer and then we discover very early on that Corifar has won a literary prize which they are having difficulty collecting um and anybody who is at all familiar with your work and your career will know that 
over a couple of, well, when, what year was it now? Two years ago? Three, two years ago, two yeah. Two years ago, you won the, the Goldsmiths Prize, but that was during the pandemic, so there was no <laughs> prize for you to collect. And sort of, are you, are you hoping that the reader sort of will make these connections and is that adding a sort of an, an extra element to the to the book or is it more just a case of the sort of the book in, in that respect should stand completely alone despite any potential connections between Corey and you? Yeah, good question. I mean, I do think the book should stand completely alone. However, um, I also, I'm interested in um, in how a book arrives, how a book sits within a wider cultural context. This is something that interests me. I don't really understand the novel as this sort of um, separate, rarefied object that mm-hmm. exists somehow in a world, in a realm of its own. I'm interested how fiction and the novel intervenes within the world, within the real world and how the real world affects and shapes mm-hmm. um, the actual novel. So in my books, there's always... A, um, there, there, there are always certain elements that are based on my experience in there. And in this case, it, like you say, it's almost like ridiculously obvious. It's almost like funny mm. that there are these overlaps at the beginning where we have this writer winning a prize, which is obviously exactly like me winning um, <laughs> winning the Goldsmith Prize. And as you say, there was this um, weird little idi- idiosyncrasy in the year that I won, which was 2021, whereby I didn't actually get um, one of the trophies that all mm. the previous winners got because um, they the trophies famously of the Goldsmith Prize they are handmade and designed by art students in the design mm. in the design department and of course during COVID the, these um, departments were all closed yeah. so in my year there wasn't a trophy of course I don't I, this is not something that means a hell of a lot to me I, but I have used it um, uh. as a jumping off point in a way to explore these ideas around social mobilities that I wanted to examine in 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 the book I've used it as um you know as you know ideas around social mobility is always like especially in fiction they're often um written as these triumph over tragedy uh-huh. narratives so and also, also they're often like really based on really um, on on mythologies around marriage so the mm. idea is you're a disadvantaged writer potentially and all you have to do is be exceptionally brilliant and you rise to the top and that's Mm -hmm. it you've done it you're sorted Mm -hmm. so I wanted to kind of complicate these ideas a little bit and make the case that it might not be quite so straightforward so my writer is getting the prize or not Mm -hmm. but not quite they never quite managed to capitalize um on, on their win, so to mm-hmm. speak, because they are constantly contending with their difference. They are constantly um, contending with their complex past, catching up with, with mm-hmm. them. So in a way, this sort of idea of the trophy never quite fully materializing is obviously just a starting point to the wider win never quite settling for them. Uh-huh. I found myself at Koshma Circus beneath the old bandstand's prominent pyramid-shaped roof contemplating a UFO. When I say UFO, I don't mean spaceship. I mean it in the literal sense, unidentified flying object. Circa half a meter tall, it hovered directly in my eyeline. 
It radiated neon beige. What a concept. I just stood there, one hand on my head, the other on my hip, considering the likelihood. We're still thinking on it, still processing, when I noticed someone or something moving behind me. I turned around and saw it was Bambi. When I say Bambi, I mean Bambi, but not as we know him. On top of his famously unsteady legs, he had four spider's legs. Grand total was eight. Besides, he had multiple sets of eyes, like that Sarah-filtered kitty on Instagram, or most common spiders, pavok in one euro language. The phone looked at me, batting four sets of lashes, giving this arming smile. Off he went, hustling around the bandstand, rattling the local blue tits to the core. My modus operandi was dissociation and tonight was no exception. This was a deer in the headlight situation and by deer I mean myself, not Bambi Pavok. I was at a loss what to do, especially about the task I'd been sent to carry out. Did I say I'd won a mad prize, likely by mistake? The award for the fictionalization of social evils goes to chair of the judging committee saying my name, Corey Farr. That had been at the online winner announcement. I'd attended with Drew Shumsky, my soulmate and partner, earlier tonight at home in our flat on Socialny Estate. Drew going shut the front door, what's going on? I'd missed much of what had followed the announcement. I just sat there in my white fruit of the loom type charity shop t-shirt and watched myself on the live stream. I'd worn gray cotton joggers, t-shirt tucked in, a detailed wasted on camera, of course. Black brogues, I'd got them involved. I was fairly certain though, that in the after session to the public announcement, the prize coordinator had asked me to go Koshma Circus and collect the physical representation of the cultural capital I just acquired. Go get your trophy, she'd said. Do it quickly before the judges change their minds. I hadn't been sure if she was joking or not. So I told Drew I'd be going. What now, they'd asked? Would be an hour's walk at the minimum, even if I cut through the little woods just south of a state. No matter, I'd left straight away. Koshma Circus was an ornamental mound in the center of a social housing estate in the east of the international capital. Surrounded by 13-story high concrete apartment blocks, it felt fenced in. Blackthorn, hawthorn and elder bushes grew in concentric flower beds between street level and the first tier, and again between the first and second tiers, historical bandstand on top. Problem was, I couldn't see any trophy. Just a UFO and Bambi Pavok, pampas grass in mid-distance. Was I in the wrong place, I wondered? Had I misunderstood the instructions? Detail had, I want to say, not been forthcoming, more like withheld. It'll be self-explanatory, the prize coordinator had said. The assumption had been that a winner would know how to collect, that price culture etiquette, its unwritten rules and regulations, would be second nature to them. But I didn't know how to collect, and they weren't second nature to me. I'd not won an award before, and neither had anybody I knew. I, I, I did find the whole... Um the whole sort of element, let's say, around around the prize and the sort of, I guess, the literary world generally and the idea of a literary career, really fascinating because I think, as you say, it's one of those things which isn't really addressed 
that much, I suppose, because often the story is written by, by the people who who rise to the top rather than the people who maybe get sort of stuck, sort of floundering in the <laughs> in in the middle. Um, but was it something? Is, is there something for you, sort of particular about the the literary world here, like the the way that sort of it sort of takes people from uh, sort of marginalized communities and perhaps uses them for its own ends without actually ever really giving them a place in the in the world itself yeah definitely so this is definitely one of the um the dynamics and the the wider wider social context that i'm that i'm writing about or thinking about when i'm you know in the in the book and i think that applies to the literary world what you just said it also applies to every single other um, world, every single other privileged context there is. So in universities, as you know, we they have like, we have like a widening participation agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, you you sort of propel people from disadvantaged backgrounds into these contexts of privilege, but the contexts themselves they never change or transform. Mm-hmm. So it's the minor, the kind of um, the minority or marginalized person who has to adapt to these contexts that were literally designed to exclude them. Mm-hmm. So it's some of these complications that I'm that I'm thinking about in the book in a kind of um, much in a kind of fun way, I guess, in a mm-hmm. kind of like surreal and wild way. Yeah. But I think that's definitely in the in the literature world that is obviously the case, you know, that um, people are picked up and sort of um, capitalized on and then often not potentially not particularly well looked after mm-hmm. but it's also the case in every single it's even the case in, like in business it's the case in every other context that pos- of privilege there possibly is uh, and I, th- I think there's that idea of kind of um the assumption that you will know what to do with the success when it comes yeah. which yeah. again is i think uh an assumption of privilege as well because yeah. for the most part i guess it uh it involves people in the family or in the circle who have had a similar experience in the past and who can, who could advise you on it. I mean, it, it really made me think back to the time when, um, when I was at university and in, in our family, it was sort of myself and my brother were the first generation mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. to university. Mm-hmm. And there was this sense of sort of, Oh, once you've gone to university, you know, doors open, your kind of your life is sort of mapped out for you. And then just this sense as, as the, the several years of the undergraduate degree went on of like, Oh, I've really no idea what I'm gonna yeah. be doing with this once yeah. I once I get to the end of it, and that didn't seem to apply to a lot of the a lot of the people around me. So there was, yeah, there was a real familiarity in that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. The cultures that that we enter into as we sort of rise up the ladder, so to speak, mm. they're not really they're not designed to um to to sort of sustain us. Mm-hmm. In that's in, in in a sense, so exactly that's that's precisely part of the point of the. Was there was there any um, fear in your part of um, you know this is a of course this is a world in which you're you know you 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 want to progress in which you're building your career, and uh, I'm not saying there are some things in here which felt like you were burning bridges, but um, <laughs> there was a just just one one I think possibly for me the most pointed description which I love I've got in my notes here where you write. Personally, I'd know the prize coordinator shoulder-length wave with the fringe anywhere. Her saucer-sized glasses on a lanyard and her flouncy blouse with the hashtag decolonized literature pin, another one saying ally. (laughs) 
Um, was, was there any concern in the writing of it that sort of the book world, which had just to a certain extent yeah. embraced you with the prize, oh, God, might, yeah. uh, might shove you out again? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. To some extent, yeah. I mean, I, the, the whole book is entirely irreverent. I mean, that is obvi- that is obviously what it does. It's really cheeky. And um to be completely honest with you, I, I do have other problems. About. <laughs> However, I will also say that um, I myself have actually, this is the difference between me and Corey Farr, you know, mm. I have done, um, I'm doing much, much better than my protagonist. That is the joke <laughs> of it all. So for me, winning the Goldsmith Prize, especially, which I absolutely love, you know, mm. the Goldsmith Prize is really meaningful to me. I think it's, a, you know, I think it makes a huge difference in the in the context of contemporary literature in Britain. I love mm. the people who run it highly competently. Mm-hmm. So um, the Gold, winning the Goldsmith Prize has made a massive personal difference to me. Simply... Um, by virtue of I got an agent straight away after an excellent agent as well and I obviously then signed this new book Corrified as Social Mobility really quickly to in a way like my dream publisher Hamish Hamilton so I'm so far doing fairly well even though you know I take all of these things a little bit with a pinch of salt but at the moment um, I'm doing okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, maybe the, this is the thing. And, you know, the, the question is then obviously, you know, um, the, the thing is you want to work with people within the literary landscape mm. who also want to affect change. Sure. And I find that by um, writing in the cheeky way and the critical way that I am, that actually over time, I mean, it really took a long time, has mm. now finally um attracted the right kind of people for me to work with Mm -hmm. so that's that's a fact I I think I will be continued to be supported by those people in within literature within the establishment as well who want Mm -hmm. to see change and who want to see you know who want to see um the novel broadened and and widened and just sort of um it made a bit more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so. in, in the um, in the opening scenes of um, of Corey Farr, um, so there is the the prize which they have to which they try to collect. Um, but there's also the the second very sort of disruptive element of um, of this book uh, that is introduced to us, which is um, and I want to make sure I pronounce it right, Bambi Pavuk. Yeah, that's, I would say so. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Okay, I'm going to chicken out here, Isabel. I'm going to let you introduce Bambi Pavuk to uh, <laughs> our readers, our listeners, both as a sort of a physical concept and yeah. a, a physical presence, and as a and as a concept. Yeah. So there's this. Um, okay, there's a while as Corifar is attempting to collect their prize, which is like an unusual prize. It's a, a prize that is uh, is described as a neon beige UFO and neon beige unidentified flying object that they have to collect at the at this place called Koshma Circus, which I, which I um, mentioned previously. So as they try to collect it, the trophy keeps flying off. The trophy sort of um, is elusive. It keeps mm-hmm. flying off, like literally. Um, but to make things even more difficult for Corey, this sort of um, creature comes into, their, li- into um, their life, which is sort of a sort of Bambi, but it's a Bambi with spider legs and uh. eight eyes. So it's like this <laughs> hybrid, this like this spider Bambi. Okay, this sounds totally nuts, but it's sort of, um, um, 
I think I sort of managed to somehow make it make sense in the novel. It's um to if if you wanna the the, the idea about of, about Bambi is that it sort of acts as one of the um characters and one of the actors in within the plot that keeps disrupting a straightforward narrative line. It sort of keeps getting in the way of Corifar doing well, of Corifar being able to um, control their own life, their own actions. There's constantly this Bambi Pavok to contend with. And um, arguably Bambi Pavok represents past a part of Corifar's own past. Mm-hmm. So it's this um, cute little thing like Bambi um, who lost his mother, you know, uh, how um, as just like famously Bambi did, you know, lost, lost his mother really young and then undergoes all sorts of hardship. But Bambi Pavok is different to Walt Disney's Bambi in the mm. sense that um, it has all of these spider features and it's a little <laughs> bit othered. It's sort of a little bit my Bambi um, is naughty, is constantly a little bit dangerous, is mm. constantly a little bit um, unruly and unsubordinate. And um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested in the um, in the the importance of of Walt Disney's Bambi actually to to you and the conception of both this character and the and the book generally. I mean, you mentioned that sort of the Bambi is one of uh, famously one of the, the 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 Walt Disney characters who um, among quite a few actually who loses their mother uh, very young um, was was is is that the in in one sense the sort of the, the key to to the interest and the connection to Corey Farr or is there something something else going on there? There's um I was basically looking for a, a figure from either from literature or from popular culture or from history i was looking for a figure through which to write some of my own or cory mm. past mm-hmm. so the connection is and this is not important to know in the context of the novel in a way the connection is that i'm from a place in germany called the black forest mm-hmm. that i sort of escaped very young so i migrated to london at a at a young age pretty mm-hmm. much like my pro- protagonist cory far so Bambi Pavok somehow, to some extent, if you want to psychologize it, um, represents a past um, of, of a difficult childhood, mm-hmm. I guess, of a difficult um, sense of growing up. So it's this sort of forest context mm-hmm. that I wanted to bring in, um, which is largely my own, but also mm-hmm. Bambi's, you know. So it, this forest context of coming from somewhere else, of having a difficult childhood, that sort of is represented and carried into the narrative through Bambi Pavok, mm-hmm. this the spider Bambi character. <laughs> and, and, and obviously, yeah. yeah, sorry. No, no, go on. And obviously also a, a queerness. So there's because it's not Bambi, it's Bambi Pavok, it's spider Bambi with his mm-hmm. with its with with his legs and his crazy anatomical features and his mm-hmm. his um you know and his as I, as I said, his subordinate temperament. So it's also it's in a way it's in a way a queering of of Bambi mm-hmm. as well. And I guess a, a complicating about our sort of um, immediate, let's say, emotional um, reaction uh, to the character as well. I mean, I think there is a moment where where you write that, um, yeah, that's it. He'll he'll never elicit the compassion that Bambi elicits. Um, and I th- I thought that was that was a really sort of interesting, um, clearly very intentional approach was to create 
this um, this creature who was both sort of sort of emotionally important to the book, but also I think probably more for the spider side than the deer side, very hard to to warm to nonetheless. Yeah, no, exactly. This is um um that's what I d- did deliberately, but I'm also to some extent challenging it a little bit. You know, the idea that there are certain creatures or slash people mm-hmm. who are um who are eliciting our sympathy much more easily than mm-hmm. others. So to some extent I'm also critiquing that in in the book, you know, the idea you know, we see that, you know, we see whose lives are worth a lot mm-hmm. and we see whose lives are worth worth nothing all the time. So in one chapter I'm sort of deliberately, kind of provocatively also drawing this out that the spider Bambi is much less lovable mm-hmm. than normal Bambi. And obviously, you know, you can you can um, transpose that argument onto much more um, meaningful and sinister um, registers like, you know, which pers- which, pe- which children are worth, are considered valuable and which children are considered disposable. Absolutely. And also, um, I mean, there's another moment where you write that he gives the impression he's able to fend for himself and he almost certainly is. And that really resonated, I think. And there's something, it's a kind of, I guess, a cruel irony of our societies is the sort of, we almost assume that the people who have had the toughest childhoods are the toughest people and are therefore exactly. able to, um, you know, don't don't need help or don't need yeah. assistance because they have been toughened up. And it's sort exactly. of, it really, yeah, really highs, exactly. highlights the... And it's the, also really um, racialized as well, isn't it? Because absolutely. There's like an entire um, discourse around the, the insane ideas that um, black people, for example, don't suffer pain in the same way mm-hmm. as white people or that, um, like, think about migrant children or refugee mm. children they can take it you know whereas if you whereas the white child has to be um you know has to be sitting in a four by four to protect right. itself <laughs> from the outside world so there's this there's this in there's this almost insane double standard of mm. whose life is precarious and whose life isn't yeah 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 I'd like to unpick a little bit more the the connection between uh, Bambi Pavok and Corey Far, and we should also say Drew, uh, so Corey's partner and um, Fumper, who <laughs> is a kind of a well for for people who know Bambi the film will know Thumper the the rabbit, and this is a slightly um, <laughs> I don't quite know what the word a contorted uh, yeah. version. Um, I was I fluctuated in in reading about these, and I don't. But necessarily expect a definitive answer here, but like the, the these creatures functioned in one sense almost like sort of spirit animals in a way um, that you would find in sort of South American um, sort of native native cultures, and on the other side almost a sort of slightly independent kind of trickster figure. So not so their 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 attachment Bambi Pavok to Kuri and Fumper to Drew sometimes seemed very close and almost, I mean, I think there's a moment where a Bambi is referred to as being an extension of Corey's body, Uh, but other times where they seem to act as sort of, uh, sort of independent um, beings. Did you have a sort of a, a sort of a fixed idea of quite how that connection was, uh, was forged or not forged between them? Or was it something that fluctuated for you as the novel went on? Exactly. I mean, this 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 is sort of one of the tensions that I play with in a way in the novel. Precisely, this sort of um, the the closeness between Corey and Bambi Pavok, mm-hmm. and also between um, Corey's 
partner is called Drew, and as um, Adam said, there's a, another animal character called Thumper, which is like exactly a take on Thumper, the rabbit, um, that appears as the um, as the book progresses. And precisely, they are kind of like they the human characters get very very attached or very connected to the animal characters, but they also there's always this tension between them. There's always a um, a repulsion and also a, a rejection to some extent mm-hmm. um, of the human characters. Um, the, the human characters, especially Corey, rejects um, the animal characters to some extent, especially as they continue to intervene more and more with their project to get hold of the prize. So it's complicated, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's complicated. It's complicated. And um, so is in some, to some extent, uh, the love story you mentioned, which is obviously between the human characters. So there's, as I said, Corey Farr, the protagonist, and their partner, Drew Shamsky. And mm-hmm. um, the book is also about their how their relationship, in a way, responds to Corey winning that mm-hmm. prize. And some of the, um, it sort of um, <clears throat> brings out some of the difficulties, potentially, for um, the partners of writers, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> long-suffering partners of writers, you know. Um, so that's obviously the central relationship. But yeah, these animal relationships that they are constantly there, intervening and shifting the dynamic and yeah. shifting the emphasis of what's going on yeah. throughout the book. I found that that relationship between Corey and Drew really um, fascinating and really sort of subtly drawn as well. Like I don't, I don't, you don't in one sense, go go that much into detail about about their relationship, about their lives together. But from their interactions, we really get a sense of their their dynamic and, as you say, the tensions um, that, that that could exist. And, and one thing, so Drew has quite a um, quite a stressful, quite a sort of a harrowing job um, working as as a um, as a translator or an interpreter in in hospitals and being um, sort of I guess an intermediary between doctors giving diagnoses to the patients and and things like that. The, the kind of the kind of job which you know it sounds insanely draining and and sort of and, and, and exhausting. And then you know we know this as writers, like we have a tendency to complain about the uh, the writing life, but it seemed there's sort of a determination uh, in 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 this relationship to. I suppose highlight the the you know the the fact that however hard it is for writers, we're not necessarily on the coal face. Let's say. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. So that's one of the tensions that that I'm precisely drawing out in their relationship. And also, yeah, it's okay. It's the hardship, but it's also um, this kind of like social work. Obviously, is immediately meaningful. Mm-hmm. So it's immediately has this meaning. It is um, immediately makes a contribution to. to um, to a society that is struggling and falling apart, arguably in Britain at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whereas us as writers, I mean, I'm the biggest defender of fiction. I think it makes it a, an enormous difference to some people's lives, including mine. But there's with fiction writers, there's always this, it's not an immediate mm-hmm. contribution to society. It's, it's like sort of delayed and arguably over time. It's not, you know... Um, helping someone in a hospital it's not being a nurse it's not being like you say um, working the, in in the mines or on a bus it's yeah. it's sort of a m- much less um, removed 
indirect contribution to culture and society. So, yeah, that's sort of, um, I'm sort of juxtaposing this quite deliberately. So obviously also then Drew gets slightly annoyed at Corey sometimes <laughs> because, you know, everything is about Corey winning this prize, but really the important work arguably is done by Drew, the partner, ah. who has to facilitate Corey constantly, you mm -hmm. know. <laughs> well, I can. I think some many writers um, will will recognize some of that with their own yeah. partners. And does it does, but Drew does so with a sort of a relative stoicism, I would say. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> know, affection perhaps would be yeah, would be better. Exactly. One of one of the the things that um, I suppose uh, one of their common interests, let's say, uh, although I think it's probably more Drew's favorite shows. The Gurry is this TV show. And this is um, another thing which is going to become crucial to sort of expanding, I guess, the universe of of the novel is this um, is this TV show. So St. Orton gets to the bottom of it. Um, and again, and for, for the second time in this interview, I'm going to chicken out and ask uh, and ask you to sort of introduce the, the, the TV show and also this concept. And again, pronunciation wise. Cervidira? How would we pronounce that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a Polish word. It's Cervidira. I don't know. Okay. Cervidira. Um, it's, a, it's, I think, Polish or Czech. I don't know. I deliberately mixed up um, mm. various, um, various um, European languages in the book um, just to bring this sort of, um, just to sort of de-Britishize it mm. a little bit. Um, yeah, Cervidira means wormholes in either Czech or Polish. <laughs> oh God, that's so disrespectful. But yeah, that's what it does. It means wormholes. Mm -hmm. And um, that connects to, exactly. So that opens up the whole book um, beyond what we already talked about. So there's this um, TV show that Corey and Drew watch religiously. It's called, um, like you said, St. Orton gets to the bottom of it. And it's um, presented by a, a, a person who who is like a weird take of Joe Orton, the British right. um, playwright. So it's like a kind of like a, a present. It's, it's almost as if Joe Orton would have survived mm -hmm. and did a TV show about something kind of um, crazy now. So it's it, this is um, I kind of um, I I did this for two reasons. I wanted to I. Um, wanted because obviously yeah I'm uh, exploring a queer working class writer winning a big prize and then things going wrong. Of course, Joe Orton's um, but uh, of Joe Orton's biography is um, working class queer writer, gay writer, um, winning big prize, starting to be successful, and within months he's mm -hmm. dead. Mm -hmm. He's he was murdered by his. Um, long-term partner, um, Kenneth Halliwell, mm -hmm. he was called. So there's this real-life story that I sort of um, deliberately draw, not a parallel with Corey Farr. Um, no, I, I don't use to draw a parallel to Corey Farr's mm -hmm. story, but I bring in to the mix as well to have like a historical a, a precedent in there mm -hmm. somehow. So, but in my in my totally fictional version of Joe Orton, 
the he uh, he is a game he's like a, a hostess show uh-huh. the bottom <laughs> of it, which is about and this sounds now a bit nuts but it makes sense in the book again i hope it's about um people traveling through wormholes space mm-hmm. and time defying passageway passageways so this is how bambi pavok came mm-hmm from the 1942 context in the forest, which is the Walt Disney film, Mm -hmm. into the presence. This is how Joe Orden escaped the domestic violence scene in the 1960s, which is when the real Joe Orden died, and emerges in the the present Uh of the book, able to host a TV show which precisely explores the existence of these wormholes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could we talk a little bit about wormholes as a concept and i suppose particularly what they what they mean to you as a as a writer like um because i I guess this this is one of the things it comes back to the um sort of 60s 70s sci-fi that i was referring to earlier which is sort of um by not feeling kind of constrained by any sort of rules of realism or things like that it was able to to sort of expand consciousness in quite in, in 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 certain quite sort of radical ways, um, what for you does sort of taking one of these one of these concepts, which I mean, I wormholes people traveling through, like it's kind of an existing concept in in science fiction, and so when you you sort of like bring it wholesale into the into the literary realm, what uh, what function does that uh, does that or what, or does that open up for you? Perhaps we should ask as a as a writer. Exactly. So like you say, wormholes is like one of these standard tropes in science fiction. I mean, it's it's done to death. Mm-hmm. But what has done what has been done um, far less often and what I would argue is relatively innovative is to transport tropes from within genre fiction mm-hmm. into literary fiction now. So this is not a science fiction novel, I would argue, mm-hmm. but it's a literary it's a completely um expanded version of what literary fiction could be mm-hmm. by working with certain radical and innovative tropes that um, have been done in other um, in other um, genres. Mm-hmm. So I do this deliberately, this really working across genre distinctions, um, because I think the sort of clear distinctions between literary genres is something that has helped maintain the novel as the kind of relatively um stagnant okay this mm-hmm. is this is obviously provocative this relatively sort of um, unmovable form it has mm-hmm. become mm-hmm. okay i think there's interesting stuff obviously going on with the novel but i think we could take it much further uh-huh. i think we could just really take it much further and one of the ways of doing this i would argue is by working across genre distinction mm-hmm. distinctions entirely to come yeah. up with something completely new. I think it's also for me when reading Corifa, um, I think one of the things that I found most exciting about it was that it's it's it does things that only a book can do. And I think it's kind of a reminder actually to to readers. And I think particularly as you know, we live in an age of of adaptations and things like that, that there are there are certain elements of the of the story or certain things that happen to to Corifa, which you could almost say that was sort of if you were working in in the medium of film, for example, that would almost be impossible for you to 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 get get the effect or to you know to to do to do what you do, um, and that I found that I found really exciting. It felt like a sort of a, a rejuvenation of the novel or a sort of a, a reminder that 
however stagnant uh, the, the the form can become, it doesn't mean that it's it doesn't mean that it's dead, and it doesn't mean that there are, are aren't new things that can that can be done with it. I think this is precisely my point. I think when I say stagnant, I don't mean to be offensive. Obviously, lots of people are doing incredibly interesting stuff with the novel, but I think it could be so much more. So I think we haven't even we haven't even. I know I know it's an old form, you know, but mm. we haven't we haven't exhausted the potential mm. of this form at all. So I think there is so in a way my my um, view of the novel is so much bigger than it even is. I think it could be even so much more if we just sort of um, dared to disrupt some of the traditions that have become completely normalized mm-hmm. so that we don't even see them anymore. I think um, I think that so much more can be done with the novel and uh, I think this should be our collective project in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd just like to finish on the subject which is kind of connected to um, to wormholes in a sense um, and I'm going to I want to talk about this, but I want to try and talk about it without um, without sort of spoilers. I mean, in one sense, I think Cory Farr is not the kind of novel which you can really spoil because the experience of reading uh, reading it is um, <laughs> is so sort of undescribable. But but it's I guess it's more because it concerns Cory's kind of emotional trajectory. Um, I don't want to necessarily lay out everything in front of our in front of our listeners, but. One thing, um, so another, I guess, science science fiction trope that you use, which is, which is again connected to wormholes, is the idea of the time loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I suppose this connects to the idea of the of the novel as a form being able to do things that um, perhaps other other mediums might struggle with or might you know, not be able to do in quite the same way. Um, again, I suppose, would you be able to talk a little bit about the the way you handle time, particularly in the in the closing chapters of the novel, and um, and again, did did that feel to you very much like you were pressing up against certain um, certain constraints of the of the of expectations of what the novel can and should do? Yeah, um, yeah. So, like you say, the in a way, kind of the last couple of chap- chapters, in a way, the finale of the novel, so to speak, the characters. Um, Drew, Corey Farr and Drew Shamsky get stuck in a time loop. Again, like a, a well-rehearsed um, trope, but not necessarily in the context of the literary novel. Mm. But um, I think, generally speaking, I think the novel does, if I say so myself, I think what I was attempting to do was I was attempting to do interesting work with time. Because um, what we often have in novels is either we have obviously a chronology or we have flashbacks mm-hmm. or we have, you know, people talking about their own past. So we have sort of relatively um, set ways of introducing backstory, very sort of set and um, kind of boring, <laughs> arguably, <laughs> ways of bringing in people's pasts. Okay, yeah. everybody knows if a flashback is a little bit boring, isn't it? Like you try to get through it to, sure. to kind of um, to to make the action continue again. Um, so that's why I'm trying to. That's one of the reasons. I I think what I have attempted in this book is to do different things with backstory, different things with time, different things also. Um, with agency, like mm-hmm. obviously if there's a time loop, there is some sort of agency in the sense that 
um, characters can, to some extent, intervene in past events, even mm -hmm. though agency, again, is always very complicated because there's so many disrupting factors mm -hmm. that is never straightforward. But, um, yeah, there is it, the entire idea of wormholes, things flying in from the past, time loops, um, again, the past becoming relevant and meaningful in the present in mm -hmm. a variety of ways, obviously also makes the relatively um, simple argument that you can never properly think through the present without yes. understanding the past. And that's a personal past of a character as well as historical past mm -hmm. and precedents. So the, the book makes that argument all the time. It weaves the past mm -hmm. into what's happening now or even future prospects all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, Isabel, I think we've had a pretty good stab at uh, describing this almost indescribable book. Um, I I hope it's come across in um, in this interview. I'm sure it has to uh, to our listeners how how exciting and brilliant and sort of uh, and fun as well, which is um, which is not always a given for a contemporary novel. Um, Cory Fada's Social Mobility is it's such a such a wonderful book. Uh, I can only hope our listeners now are going to uh, rush out and buy it. You can, of course, get it from Shakespeare and Company. Uh, our bricks and mortar store from our uh, online shop or your local independent bookstore um, wherever you are in uh, in the world um, all this left for me to say is Isabel Vida thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me Adam it was such a pleasure thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends and don't forget if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just three euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.